to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 3, verse 5, as we follow along with today's lesson. We are told that he looked upon them with anger. Now, this is an emotion that we rarely associate with Jesus, anger. He was one of the coolest. I mean, nothing seemed to disturb him except religious blindness. This is the thing that, remember the other time uh, where we saw Jesus angry? When he came into the temple and found that they had made merchandise out of the temple, they were using it for their own personal profits and selling the doves and the certified animals for sacrifice. And he made the scourge and and began to drive them out angry. Here again, his anger was stirred by the religious people who because of their narrow religious traditions would keep a man from experiencing the touch of God and the help of God in his life. That angered Jesus, and I believe rightfully so. Narrow religious traditions that keep men from experiencing the touch of God that God desires to bless them, but the religious traditions would keep them from that. It angered Jesus then. I believe it angers Jesus today. Now, when the man was healed, they immediately took counsel with the Herodians. The Herodians were friends of Rome. Now, the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, they would never think of eating with a Gentile, of even having any kind of commerce with a Gentile, touching a Gentile. They wouldn't do that. But the Herodians were those Jews who were a part of Herod's court and had become friends of Rome. And they were courting the favor of Rome. So the Herodians and the scribes and Pharisees were opposed to each other. But they were united in their common desire to destroy Jesus. And as we pointed out this morning, it seems incomprehensible that men would want to destroy Jesus. And why? 
because he healed a man with a withered hand, contrary to their religious convictions, because it was the Sabbath day. So they, they want to kill him. Now their law says thou shalt not kill. That doesn't seem to bother them. What an inconsistency. What a blindness. And so they sought how they might destroy him. And from here on, we're going to find the breach between Jesus and the religious leaders becoming greater and greater until finally they have him arrested. They bring him to Pilate to receive the sentence of crucifixion. And Pilate, having examined him, went out to the people and said, I've examined him, and I find no fault with him. The people just irrationally cried, let him be crucified. Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? Give me some charges. But it was totally irrational. They only cried the more, let him be crucified. Now, the ministry of Jesus is summed up he went around doing good and healing all manner of sicknesses. That was the story of what he had done. Nothing but good. He taught that we should love one another, that we should forgive one another, that we should be merciful. And, and he taught that we should not strive, we should not be jealous of others. And the things that he taught were right. They were good concepts. To live a good life, a holy life, a righteous life, a pure life. And he did nothing but good. And yet... He was a threat to the religious leaders. Now, the Bible tells us that Pilate knew that it was just for because they were jealous that they delivered Jesus to be crucified. That was the real motive of their heart. They, they, this whole business of we, you know, trying to make sure the law is kept is a big farce. Down inside, they were jealous. They had already said, look, if this man continues in his popularity, we're going to be out of business. Everybody's being drawn to him. We'll not be able to rip them off when they come into the temple to worship God, you know. And so they determined that something had to be done. Tragic. Tragic. But even more tragic is the fact that there are people today who are still seeking to destroy Jesus. They're seeking to destroy the influence of Jesus in our society. They try to destroy God. And they make up all kinds of fanciful stories, fairy tales, under the guise of science, to try to explain our existence apart from God. When I was a child... I always loved the story of the princess who saw this little frog at the pond and became very fondly affectionate 
for that little frog. It seemed to be so friendly. And one day, on impulse, she leaned over and kissed the little frog. And instantly it turned into a handsome prince. And they were married, a prince who had received a curse from a witch or something. And he could only become a handsome prince again if a beautiful princess would kiss him. And, you know, so they lived happily ever after. He turned from a frog to a prince. Do you really believe that? (laughs) Well, that's the story that men of science are telling you today, only it didn't happen instantly. It took two billion years. But the frog turned into a prince, into a man. Just took longer. Well, it's just as fanciful a fairy tale over two million or two billion years as it is overnight or instantly. It's the same old hokum. Interestingly enough, just interesting, <laughs> the genetic code in the DNA in a frog is extremely more complex than the genetic code in your body. So the possibility of evolution is so we're moving towards the frog rather than the frog moving towards us. <laughs> Little things they like to ignore. Now, there is this plotting now to destroy Jesus. And so rather than a confrontation at this time, it's going to come. But now is not the time for it. When the time comes, Jesus will face it squarely. He'll go to Jerusalem when his hour comes. But it is not yet, and so we find that he withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, out of Capernaum. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea. People now were gathering to the region of the Galilee, even from the area around Jerusalem, down in the south, Judea. They were coming up, and people from around Galilee. Now we are told by Josephus that at that particular time that Jesus was ministering in the ten cities of the Decapolis the population of these ten cities was about 25,000 at least in each city so there's a large population there in the Galilee region but they're also gathering from the area of Judea from Jerusalem and from Idumea uh, down in the the southern part across the Dead Sea and from beyond Jordan and from about Tyre and Sidon, from the coast of Phoenicia. Great multitudes hearing about Jesus, hearing about the miracles of healing are gathering, so much so, uh, the great multitude, when they had heard the great things he did, they came to him. And so he told his disciples, now let's get a small ship. Uh, that we have it here. Uh, Because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. 
So Jesus was getting in this little ship and, and getting away from the shore a bit and, and teaching the people because they were pressing. You know how crowds are. They want to get close. They want to press. In fact, the people were desiring to touch him. So it must have been extremely difficult with these huge crowds of people just pressing upon him. So the, the little ship was so that uh, they could pull out, as, as we are told in one of the Gospels, how that Jesus said, you know, just pull out a little ways, and he taught the people from the ship. And so uh, here it is, that the little ship to wait on him uh, because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him to touch him, as many people who had plagues, just pushing their way through, shoving, pushing, getting close enough to touch him. And when a person has a plague, when a person is very sick, they'll, they, they can become very pushy and shovey to get help. And thus, they were pressing Jesus. And unclean spirits, demons, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he strictly charged them that they should not make him known. And then we find that he went up to a mountain and he called unto him those whom he would and they came unto him. Notice that he called unto him whom he would. He is now going to choose of the many disciples that are following him Twelve to be called apostles. But it is his choice. He is the one who is going to choose them. And later, in John chapter 15, the night that Jesus is betrayed, on that last night with him, he turns to them and he said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained that you should be my disciples and that you should bring forth fruit and your fruit should remain. So these he called and those he called he chose. He ordained, he willed that they should be his apostles, that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal the sicknesses and to cast out devils, to do the things that he was doing. He ordained them that they should be with him, that they might be sent forth to preach, and he gave to them the power to do the works that he was doing. And si Simon, who was surnamed Peter, now, it was Jesus who changed his name. When he first met him, he said, You are Simon, but you shall be Cephas. When in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus said, Whom do men say that I am? Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah. Bar Jonah. Bar, you know, his son. Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah. 
Flesh and blood did not reveal this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you that you are Petros. You are a, you are a stone or a little rock. And upon this Petra, I will build my church. A play on words here. Petros, little stone, Petra, great rock. He's not saying you are Petra. You're not the great rock. You're a little stone. But upon the great rock I will build my church. What great rock? The confession of Peter that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. That is the foundation upon which the church is built. No other foundation have we than that which is already laid, Paul said, which is Jesus Christ. So you are Petros, little stone. Upon this Petra I will build my church. So it was Jesus that called him. Now, it is interesting to me that probably the most vacillating of all these guys was Peter. I mean, he was the guy that was always wishy-washy, and Jesus yet says, you're going to be a rock. Knowing what could be through the power of the Holy Spirit. The one who was to deny, to deny him. The one who was to draw the sword and start to fight and have to be rebuked by Jesus and told to put away the sword and all. The one who walked on the water and began to sink. I mean, just, you know, just didn't have it together. But yet the Lord said, you're going to be a rock. And he changed his name to Rock, Rocky. <laughs> now he changed also the names of James and John. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. And he surnamed them Boanerges. Now, uh, that means sons of thunder. And uh, it was probably sort of a nickname that Jesus gave him because these were the guys that were ready to call down fire from heaven on some of the enemies of Jesus. And so... Uh, when some people were sort of giving Jesus a bad time, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them, you know? <laughs> and so Jesus probably from that time called them sons of thunder, you know. And then Andrew. Now Andrew was the brother of Peter, but he was previously a disciple of John the Baptist. And we are told that he was standing with John the Baptist as Jesus passed by. And John said to him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Andrew came to Jesus. And Jesus stopped and Andrew really was sort of at a loss of what to say. He said, where do you live? You know. And so Jesus just said, come and see. It was Andrew then who went to Peter and he said, we have found the Messiah. And so it was Andrew who brought Peter, his brother. Now, Andrew has sort of a, he appears in other places, but whenever you see Andrew, he is always bringing people to Jesus. Good job. Uh, when the multitude was there on the hillside and they uh, 
Jesus said, well, we need to feed them. It was Andrew who brought the little boy to Jesus with the five loaves and the two fish. Uh, it was Andrew who brought Peter to Jesus. It was Andrew who, uh, when the Greeks came, saying we would see Christ, it was Andrew who came to Jesus with the request that the, the Greeks were seeking to see him. Then there was Philip. And then there was Bartholomew. Now Bartholomew was also named Nathaniel. And thus he was the one that Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite in which there is no guile. He was the one that Philip had called uh, to uh, come and see the Messiah. And when he met Jesus, he said, An Israelite in whom there is no guile. Then there was Matthew. Now, of Matthew, of course, we um, wrote the gospel. He was a tax collector. We know a little bit about him. We had him in the last lesson. And then there was Thomas, the doubting skeptic, a man who didn't pretend to know something he didn't. When Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> How can we know the way? I mean, he, he wasn't, you know, so many times we, we just are not ahead. Yeah, yeah, we understand, you know, not Thomas. He, he was the guy that, you know, show me. And then there was James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, of this James, we don't know anything. He doesn't seem to appear, except on the listings. But we really don't know anything about this particular James, the son of Alphaeus. Then there was Thaddeus. Now, he was also called Judas. And in the last night uh, with Jesus, in the 14th chapter of John, when Jesus talked about how he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and we will come and manifest ourselves unto them. And he said, and Judas, that is not Iscariot, said unto him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself unto us and not unto the world. Now, that's all we know about this particular Judas. I mean, that he appeared once more in the record, but only as a questioner on the night of the Paschal Supper. And then there was Simon the Canaanite. He was also known as the Zealot. And uh, the Zealots were a radical, revolutionary group, radical guys. And uh, no doubt he became radical for Jesus, but we don't know much about him. And then Judas Iscariot, of course, we know much about Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into an house uh, or a home. And the Greek would indicate more or less the home where Jesus stayed generally. And that probably would have been the home of Peter there in Capernaum. 
and the multitude came together again. So they could not as much as eat bread. There were so many people, so many pressures, so many people coming for help, they didn't even have time to eat. Now, I've, I've, I've seen that uh, on a few occasions where you get so busy. You don't even take time to eat. You don't have time to eat. You just, um, and so they didn't even have time to eat bread. And when they, his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. Um, his friends thought that he was losing it. The term beside himself is used for a person who's losing it. He's gotten to the place where he's talking to himself. So that's the idea of beside himself. You say, yeah, well, where are we going to go? Well, I don't know. Where are we going to go? You know? And uh, so that's the idea of beside himself, a fellow who talks to himself, sort of out of it. And so they were going to try and help him. They were going to lay hold on him and rescue him. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. Now, that is the Lord of the house. Or really they are saying that he is doing the things he is doing by the power of Satan. He has Beelzebub. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us that this accusation came as the result of Jesus casting a demon out of a man which had caused the man to be both blind and mute. He could not speak, he could not see because of the demon. And Jesus cast the demon out so that the man could both see and speak. And so the people seeing this miracle and the scribes from Jerusalem in seeing the miracle could not just pass it off. He is demonstrating his divine power over the powers of darkness in such a way that it cannot be denied. Now they have already come to the conclusion that he is not the Messiah. But they are faced with evidence, indisputable evidence of divine power. And because they had taken the position he is not the Messiah, they have to somehow explain how he could do this. Cast out the demon and give the man sight and speech. And so they said, well, he has Beelzebub. He has the powers of darkness. And it is by the prince of devils that he cast out the devils. He has the powers of, of Satan. And it's by the prince of devils that he's casting out these devils. And he called them unto him. And he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rises up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but he has an end. In other words, he is showing them how totally illogical is their conclusion and is their statement. You're saying that, you know, the house is divided, and if Satan is divided, then he's going to fall. No man can enter into the strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. Jesus was declaring that his power was greater than that of Satan's. He had the power to bind the forces of darkness and then to spoil Satan's house. And then Jesus warned them, Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven. That's an interesting statement. All sins shall be forgiven, with one exception. You see, when Christ died, he died for the sins of the world. Every sin that has ever been committed was covered by the death of Jesus. God laid on him the iniquities of us all. So if you have the misfortune of standing before the great white throne judgment of God in Revelation chapter 20, and when the books are open and you are judged out of the things that are written in those books, there is really only one charge that God will bring against you. They're not going to bring up all the little sins that you've committed down the line because all manner of sin shall be forgiven. There's only one sin that won't be forgiven. And that is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. You see, God has provided for the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ. He's provided for your salvation through Jesus Christ. But that is the only provision that God has made for your sin. There is no other way that your sin can be atoned for than Jesus Christ. He is the only provision God has made for sin. So if you do not come to Jesus Christ, if you reject him, then you are committing the unpardonable sin. You're in the process. Now, these men had not yet done it, but they were getting close. You see, the reason why they said that he was doing it by the powers of the devil, the prince of darkness, is they had taken the position he is not the Messiah. They had rejected him. And now they are looking at indisputable evidence and seeking to deny it, which shows that they are close to this unpardonable sin of the final rejection of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Jesus has been dealing with you. He comes and he offers his love and his salvation. 
and you reject. Again he comes, and again he comes, and again he comes, and again you reject, and again you reject. And it is possible for you get, to get to the place as was recorded of the Pharisees in John 12, 38. Therefore, they could not believe. It wasn't any longer they would not believe. It was they could not believe. Now, Jesus said that God did not send him into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the purpose of his coming to save you. And he that believeth is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. You're already condemned. All of sin. The wages of sin is death. The death sentence is already on you. It's already been pronounced. But God has provided a way whereby you can be pardoned. For you to reject the pardon that God offers leaves no alternative. The judgment from which Jesus came to save you will be visited upon you. You'll have to face the judgment of your sins because you have rejected God's provision. Thus, he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. It's already there. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world, but men will not come to the light. That's the whole issue. Your failure to come to Jesus Christ. And then Jesus tells us why you won't come. Because men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. So... He warns them now when they begin to attribute the works of God to Satan. They are getting close to that place of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost has never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. And it was because they said, he hath an unclean spirit. Now, Satan likes to take this particular scripture and use it against sensitive souls. And oftentimes we have had people come up totally disturbed, saying, Chuck, I, I think I committed the unpardonable sin. And I always tell them, if you had, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> you'd have no more conscience. You'd have no more desire at all for Jesus. You, you'd have no desire for spiritual things. It, when the Spirit of God leaves you, I mean, you know, God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. And the very fact that you're concerned about it, the Spirit of God is still striving with you. When you've committed the unparalleled sin, there's no more striving with you. I mean, you're just cold. No feelings concerning Jesus. No feelings concerning your eternal salvation. You're just turned off. So it, it, don't let Satan lie to you and say, oh, you did it, you know. 
as long as there is that concern for your salvation, you haven't committed it. But eternal life is not something to be toyed with. It's not something to take chances with. It's something you want to be absolutely certain about without any question, without any... You don't want any uncertainty when you're talking about eternal life. You want to make sure. Now, there came then his brothers and his mother, Mary, and the brothers of Jesus came probably from Nazareth, and they had heard how that, you know, he's not eating, he's just, you know, they're there day and night, and, and he's not, you know, they're just pressing and pushing him and uh, pushing him and pressuring him and all. So they probably came from Nazareth, and they were standing outside of the house. There wasn't room to get in because of all the people, and so they sent someone in with a message that said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking for you. And he answered them saying, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Now, if I were asking Mary to intercede for me, I would have great problems with this particular passage of scripture. For when they said, your mother's outside, he says, who is my mother? <laughs> Holy Mary, mother of God, you know, pray for us. <laughs> Sinners and all. I, I would have, I would, that would, that scripture would trouble me. I'm thankful I don't need the intercession of Mary or any of the saints. That God has opened the door for me to just come directly unto Jesus Christ. And there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. So who is my mother? Who are my brothers? For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. In other words, there is a relationship. And interestingly enough, this is the first mention of Mary since the miracle of turning the water to wine in Cana of Galilee. She evidently was just taking care of the rest of the family in Nazareth and not really a part even of, of much of Jesus' travels until a little later she seems to join with him and of course is there in Jerusalem when he is crucified. But uh, here's a relationship that Jesus is is. is declaring exist and it is a relationship that is deeper than the natural family bond and that is the bond that we have together in Christ Jesus. So Paul the Apostle says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free. Christ is all and in him all and he, and he makes us one. There is a bond within the body of Christ that is greater and closer than the natural blood bonds that you might have with family that is not converted. And you find that the family of God becomes closer to you and you experience more love and fellowship with them than those to whom you are related by natural birth. So here is Mary and his brothers. They're going to rescue him 
But Jesus said, hey, you're my brothers, you're my sisters, you're my mother, you who are doing the will of God. Calls us into that beautiful, close, intimate relationship with himself. What a privilege, what a blessing. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, as we are continuing our journey through the New Testament. Here in the fourth chapter of Mark, Jesus begins teaching in parables. Now, there is a difference of opinion in the use of parables. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan makes quite a strong case for the reverting of Jesus to uh, parables in teaching in order to continue to hold their attention, giving them truths, letting the truth come by use of the parable as more or less an illustration. Now, we know that in many of the parables, the Pharisees recognized that this parable was directed against them. You really use parables to make your talk more interesting. If you see that you're beginning to lose the attention of the congregation, and it's easy to tell from up here. <laughs> and people start going, you know, you, you know that you're losing it. And so, if you are wise, you will start to tell a story. Once upon a time. And everybody, you know, what? Now, they had accused Jesus of doing his works through the power of Satan. They really weren't listening anymore to his direct teaching. And thus, according to G. Campbell Morgan's opinion, Jesus began to tell stories in order that he might continue to give them truth and yet in sort of a subtle way holding their attention with the story and then allowing them to see but yet they did not perceive keeping their attention so they would hear and yet they would not understand it is hard to believe that God would deliberately hide the truth from men if he wants all men to be saved. God is not willing, we know, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so it would be difficult to believe that God deliberately hid the truth from people. 
but he put it in such an attractive way that they were drawn to listen. Though in listening, they didn't always see or perceive what was being said many times until afterwards and then the punchline, you know, and it gets you. And suddenly you see the truth that has been illuminated by the parable. I find that uh, Gail Irwin is a master at the craft of telling stories. He has a capacity of putting sufficient humor in it that you are just rolling in laughter. And while he has you just in fits of laughter, then he puts the knife in. (laughs) He makes the point. And you find yourself bleeding to death while you're laughing. (laughs) But if you observe his method, great at storytelling, but then the point comes home very vividly and very powerfully. So he began, we read in verse 1, He began again to teach by the seaside and there was gathered unto him a great multitude so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea, that is in the ship, just pulled it offshore a little bit and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. It had gotten almost out of hand. The fame of Jesus had spread abroad through Syria, through Tyre and Sidon, over in the Transjordan area, down to Jerusalem. People were coming from all over. And they heard of his power to heal. They brought all of the sick people. And no doubt heard of the woman who touched his garment. And so many were touching him, pressing close so they could touch him. And they were so thronging him that he could no longer just teach openly among them because of the press of the crowd. And so they got this little ship and he would be offshore just slightly. And the people there in the land and he would teach them uh, from this little ship. And he taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine. Now this is the beginning of the, of the use of parables in the ministry of Christ. And he begins with parables concerning the kingdom of God. I had a professor in seminary who said, never attempt to preach on the parables until you've been in the ministry for 25 years. He said, you really won't understand the parables until you've had a lot of experience. I disagreed with him and started out my ministry teaching on the parables of Jesus. I'm glad those sermons weren't recorded I've come to see many things in a different light 
through the years. The kingdom parables, beginning with this parable with which we are all familiar, it was in Matthew 13. Behold, there went out a sower to sow. Now, for the most part, the people were in a agrarian society. They were all farmers. Even those that lived in the city had their little plots of land out in the country where they would go in the summertime and live in these uh, make-do houses while they would farm during the summer. And so they were all familiar with parables that had to do with Planting parables that had to do with taking care of sheep and uh, various types of herbs and so forth. So using now something that is so familiar to them, a man going out in a field to sow the seed. And it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. Now, over there in the Holy Land, the rocks, and it is a rocky place. Even the fields that they plant in are, are just filled with rocks in, in many of the areas, especially around Bethlehem. But these rocky hillsides are denuded of topsoil. But there are these holes or uh, little uh, crevices that do have soil in them. And yet uh, they're only a couple inches deep of soil, and then it's just soil that's in this, this little hole in the rock, or these little indentations in the rock. And because the rock holds the warmth, these little uh, places where there's a little bit of soil in the rock are usually the first places where your flowers will bloom in the spring, the wildflowers. But they are also the first places to turn brown because uh, there is no depth of earth and thus it dries out very soon and very quickly. And so they were very familiar with the landscape and the soil conditions. And so immediately it springs up because it has no depth of earth. But when the sun is up, it is scorched because it has no root. It withers away. Some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some 30, some 60 and some a hundredfold. And he said, If you have ears to hear, let him hear.
Jesus so often used this phrase, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. Not everybody has an ear to hear. But Jesus is giving the invitation. Now when he was alone, those that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto you, it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. You can know the mystery of the kingdom of God. That's for you. But to those that are without, all of these things are done in parables that seeing they may see and yet not perceive. They can see it, they don't perceive it. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the parable of the soils. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 4-5 through 5 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we give thanks tonight for the blessing of this relationship that we can have to you through Christ Jesus, our Lord, and the fellowship that we have with him and with one another as we are bound together in the bonds of his love. Lord, lead us, guide us into all truth as your Holy Spirit instructs our hearts in the word of truth in Jesus name Amen This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California Come study the Bible with Pastor Chuck Smith as he teaches from Genesis through Revelation on a digitally remastered audio edition of Pastor Chuck's Bible Commentary. That's over 600 audio MP3 files of Pastor Chuck teaching through the entire Bible, all on a 16-gig reusable flash drive. Now you can easily listen to Pastor Chuck's Bible Commentaries when you insert this key into your computer. Then you can transfer all of these audio Bible studies to a smartphone or any other listening device to learn and study God's Word on the go. And not only that, you can reuse this flash drive that easily fits onto any keyring for even more mobility at a fraction of the cost. 
What a great way to study and learn God's Word. For more information, please call the Word for Today at 1-800-272-9673 or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.